Sunday blessings to all of you. As we once again start a new week on this primordial feast day by celebrating the Paschal mystery of Jesus Christ. May each of us graciously respond to his invitation to live more deeply his passion, death, and glorious resurrection and ascension. You are listening to Encountering Jesus with the Church Fathers, a podcast pondering patristic commentary and insight on the sacred scriptures, the sacred liturgy, and living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Father Mark, and I welcome you to this podcast on the 14th Sunday in Ordinary Time. I begin today by calling attention to the Holy Father's most recent apostolic letter, Desiderio Desideravi, on the liturgical formation of the people of God. The Latin title of this apostolic letter are the words of Jesus, recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 15, quote, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, unquote. I've placed a link to the, doc- the document in this week's podcast description. Pope Francis released this apostolic letter this past week on the solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul with the intent, as he states, quote, to offer some prompts or cues for reflection that can aid in the contemplation of the beauty and truth of Christian celebration, unquote. In reflecting on the sacred liturgy, some of the dimensions the Holy Father considers include the today of salvation history, the liturgy as the place of encounter with Christ, the church as the sacrament of the body of Christ, the theological sense of the liturgy, the liturgy as the antidote for the poison of spiritual worldliness, rediscovering daily the beauty of the truth of Christian celebration, amazement before before the Paschal mystery as an essential part of the liturgical act, the need for a serious and vital liturgical formation, and finally, the Ars Celebrandi. Interestingly, the section entitled The Ars Celebrandi, uh, that is, The Art of Celebrating the Sacred Liturgy, is the largest section of the apostolic letter, accounting for approximately 35% of the text. How the sacred liturgy is celebrated is of vital concern for all, not only the bishop or priest celebrant. How we allow ourselves to be drawn into the sacred mystery shapes and forms us as conscious disciples of Jesus, who offer authentic worship to God the Father and serves in charity 
the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters. I highly recommend this apostolic letter for your prayerful reading and study. It certainly will assist all of us in this three-year period of Eucharistic revival. As for the scriptures for this Sunday, St. Cyril of Alexandria will guide us in reflecting on the final part of the Gospel proclamation for this Sunday. Among the Fathers of the Church, St. Cyril is a rather unique character. In his day, there was no middle of the road. One either was a friend to Cyril or an enemy of Cyril. Some referred to him as a saintly defender of Nicene Orthodoxy. Others referred to him as a thug. He was born around the year 375 in a small town about 70 miles east of Alexandria, Egypt. While little is known of his early years, it is reasonable to conclude that he was afforded a good education and was certainly schooled in the sacred scriptures as well as the writings of St. Athanasius of Alexandria. His maternal uncle, Theophilus, was bishop of Alexandria and seems to have been a rather influential ecclesiastical mentor to the young Cyril. Theophilus himself was a staunch defender of Nicene Orthodoxy and had very little time for other religious movements in and around Alexandria and also vigorously defended the church's place in Alexandrian society. Theophilus also had concerns with catechetical and theological methodologies, not only in Alexandria, but throughout the church. The Synod of the Oak, held in the year 403 and heavily influenced by Theophilus, condemned the theology of the Bishop of Constantinople, St. John Chrysostom. This unfortunately cemented tensions between an Alexandrian approach to biblical exegesis and an Antiochian approach to biblical exegesis, a topic that perhaps can be visited in a future podcast. Throughout all of these happenings, the maturing Cyril shadowed his uncle and learned much in terms of theology, but much more in terms of how to act and deal with enemies of Nicene Orthodoxy. The fact that Theophilus and Cyril had very similar personality types and styles helped to shape Cyril as Theophilus's successor, which occurred in the year 412 after a very contentious election. Cyril's 
early years as Bishop of Alexandria were tumultuous, as Alexandrian society was in a state of social upheaval. During a riot led by a large group of Christians, uh, an influential Alexandrian philosopher, Hypatia, she was murdered. Uh, a cloud of suspicion hung over Cyril for her death, but it was more guilt by association. Stormier controversies grew when Nestorius was elected bishop of Constantinople. This ignited a fiery round of Christological controversies, pitting not only Cyril and Nestorius vehemently against each other, but also the catechetical schools of Alexandria and Antioch. The resulting Council of Ephesus, held in 431, attempted to resolve the controversy by proclaiming Mary Theotokos, that is, Mother of God. Nestorius re resigned as Bishop of Constantinople shortly after uh, the close of the council, and Cyril's reputation as a theologian grew, and Cyril seems to have mellowed uh, with the passing of years. He died around the year 444, and has left us an extensive body of written lectures, treatises, and homilies. We'll listen this week to an excerpt of St. Cyril's Homily 64 on the Gospel of Luke that reflects on St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. We listen now to those words of the Gospel. The 72 returned rejoicing and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us because of your name. Jesus said, I have observed Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Behold, I have given you the power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon the full force of the enemy, and nothing will harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice because the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. And now, St. Cyril's words from Homily 64. It is said somewhere by one of the holy prophets, Will the Lord God do anything without revealing the teaching thereof to his servants, the prophets? For the God of all made known to the holy prophets those things which were hereafter to take place, in order that they might previously declare them that so they might not be disbelieved 
when in due time what had been foretold arrived at its fulfillment. And those who will see that what we have now affirmed is true, even from the present lessons. For the seventy, it says, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject to us in thy name. For first of all, the twelve disciples had been appointed holy and elect men and worthy of all admiration. But inasmuch as according to Christ's declaration, the harvest indeed was great, but the laborers few, he further, in addition to those first chosen, appointed seventy others and sent them to every village and city of Judea before his face. To be, that is to say, his forerunners, and to preach the things that belong to him. And in sending them, he ennobled them with the grace of the Holy Ghost, and crowned them with the power of working miracles, that they might not be disbelieved by men, nor be supposed to be self-called to the apostleship. Just as of old there were some who prophesied, though they spoke not out of the mouth of the Lord, as the scripture said, but rather vomited forth lies from their own heart. For God, by the voice of Jeremiah, somewhere also said at one time, I have not sent the prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken unto them, yet they prophesied. And again at another, The prophets prophesied lies in my name. I sent them not. Neither spake I unto them, neither had I commanded them. In order, therefore, that men might not subject to such a suspicion those who were commissioned by Christ, he gave them power over unclean spirits and the ability to perform signs. For when the divine miracle followed close upon their word, no form either of calumny or of Jewish false speaking could find a place against them. For they were convicted of accusing them without reason, or rather of choosing to fight against God. For to be able to work miracles is possible for no man unless God give him the power and authority thereunto. The grace of the Spirit, therefore, witnessed of those who had been sent that they were not persons who ran of themselves, nor self-called to the duty of speaking concerning Christ, but that, on the contrary, they had been appointed to be the ministers of his message. The authority, however, 
which they bore to reprove evil spirits and the power of crushing Satan, was not given them that they might themselves so much be regarded with admiration as that Christ might be glorified by their means and be believed by those whom they taught as by nature God and the Son of God and invested with so great glory and supremacy and might as to be even able to bestow upon others the power of trampling Satan under their feet. But they, it says, in that they were counted worthy of so great grace, returned rejoicing and saying, Lord, even the devils are subject to us in thy name. For they confessed the authority of him who honored them and wonder at the supremacy and greatness of his power. But they seem to have rejoiced, not so much because they were ministers of his message and had been counted worthy of apostolic honors, as because they had wrought miracles. But it would have been better for them to have reflected that he gave them the power to work the miracles, not that they might be regarded by men with admiration on this account, but rather that what they preached might be believed. The Holy Ghost bearing them witness by divine signs. It would have been better, therefore, had they manifestly rejoiced on account of those, rather, who had been won by their means and had been made this a cause of exaltation. Just as also the very wise Paul gloried in those who had been called by his means, saying, My joy and my crown. But they said nothing at all of this kind, but rejoiced only in that they had been able to crush Satan. And what is Christ's reply? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is... I am not unaware of this. For inasmuch as you set out upon this journey, so to speak, by my will, you have vanquished Satan. I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. And this means that he was cast down from on high to earth, from overweening pride to humiliation, from glory to contempt from great power to utter weakness. And the saying is true, for before the coming of the Savior, he possessed the world. All was subject to him, and there was no man able to escape the message of his overwhelming might. He was worshipped by everyone. Everywhere he had temples and altars for sacrifice, and an innumerable multitude of worshipers. But because the only begotten word of God has come down from heaven, he has fallen like lightning. 
for he who of old was bold and supercilious and who vied with the glory of deity, he who had as his worshippers all that were in error is put under the feet of those that worshipped him. Is it not then true that he has fallen from heaven to earth by having suffered so great and terrible an overthrow? Who then is he that has destroyed his might and humbled him to his misery? Plainly, it was Christ. And this he announced to us in the words, Behold, I have given you the authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. St. Cyril of Alexandria, pray for us. Let us pray. O God, who in the abasement of your Son have raised up a fallen world, fill your faithful with holy joy. For on those you have rescued from slavery to sin, you bestow eternal gladness. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Alleluia.